Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Your bank should be solving your problems, not creating them. Platinum Bank partners with Twin Cities executives to help them grow their business. Learn more online at PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. It's really hard work. It's, you know, you can ask my team. We're trying to build a really amazing company founded on principles of equity that makes money. Like, we are unapologetic about profitability. And that delivers a new future for what work can look and feel like. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Our guest today is Kate Downing Collett, the founder and managing director of a small but mighty Minneapolis consultancy called Imagine Deliver. Tagline, consulting for the new majority. Since 2020, Imagine Deliver has attracted a lot of requests from big companies, healthcare organizations, government agencies for its thought leadership on workplace transformation, specifically around equity and innovation. I actually met Kate's husband, Taki, a couple of years ago. He made TCB's annual Tech 20 list of digital innovators a year before she did, and he kept telling me, you really need to meet my wife. Well, you'll soon hear why. Kate brings passion, conviction, and fresh perspective to everything she touches. That includes a new software platform she developed to help companies with another critical challenge they're facing today, employee retention. It's called Mailroom, and we'll hear how the rollout to companies is going now. So how does one become an expert in transformation and the future of work culture? It's all about the journey. I grew up um, straddling the border between um, Canada and the U.S. So Mm. my parents are originally from um, the Falcon Heights area, which is a first-tier suburb of St. Paul. Mm -hmm. And my father was a professor at University of Montreal, which is a French-speaking university. So I actually spent most of my formative years um, in Montreal, but we would come back to spend the summer in St. Paul. So this was really my second home. Mm. So when it... Um, lots of other meandering happened, but um, spe- can you speak French? I can. Nice. I grew très bien. <laughs> Merci. <laughs> um, so yeah, so so spent a ton of time sort of figuring out what this sort of global identity looked like for me and my family, and spending time here in the Midwest, which I think has a lot of beautiful gifts to share with the rest of the nation, mm-hmm. especially right now. How, how do you mean by that? Well, people think of Minnesota or other states that are landlocked as flyover. I mm-hmm. work with a lot of folks from D.C., New York, California, Seattle, mm. and... Uh, you know, up until recently, have not really considered that the Midwest has um, something really sophisticated to share sure. with the rest of the world. And I think 
you know, with the murder of George Floyd and so much of the nation looking to us in Minnesota, that narrative no longer holds. Hmm. That we have a lot, we have a lot of problems here that are indicative of problems the rest of the nation is facing, the rural-urban divide, you know, racial trauma, huge gaps in opportunity and education and wealth. All of those things are real here, Mm -hmm. and solutions are being born here. Right. So... That's what I mean. When I well, it's ex- it's an exciting time to be doing the work that you're doing. But were you thinking about those things when you were a kid? No. <laughs> okay. No. Good. I feel relieved because I was really <laughs> feeling inadequate if no. you were already on that path in elementary school. No, but I've always been curious across communities. I grew mm-hmm. up in a Orthodox Jewish neighborhood of Montreal. Uh, we were the only non-Jewish family in our on our block. Hmm. And and what was that like? Were they welcoming? Of course. Were you? Of course. Mm-hmm. Of course they were welcoming. And our family was really sort of adopted into the community in really amazing, vibrant, wonderful ways. And my upbringing is really characterized by living in this du- in this duplex. Well, actually fourplex, but we only owned like one mm-hmm. side of it where our kitchens were facing the Hockmitz family and the Hockmitz family were an elderly couple. Both had survived Auschwitz Mm. and we spent lots of time with them. We would, you know, rake their leaves and spend time um, hearing their stories and they became very dear, close family to us. Hmm. So I also went to a really incredibly diverse elementary school and then moved, uh, spent some time in Iowa where I experienced a really different type of cultural landscape. So I've been, I guess I would say, Ali, like really curious and embracing of a variety of different experiences across my lifetime, which then led me to research, mm-hmm. which is I did public health research for a master's degree, I actually spent some time in communications and cultural studies before that. So really interested about how we strategically communicate with one another Mm -hmm. and how we spend time in curiosity building new solutions. So I think the foundation of my work was there all along. Interesting. But I graduated with a master's degree around the time of the 2008 economic crash. Mm -hmm. Got my first job in a very large research institution working with veterans hmm. and, and hearing their stories of PTSD and trauma. Okay. And my favorite part of that job was those veterans and really realized that they had solutions to their own pain experience, that journal articles weren't catching, that the hospital that I was working for wasn't necessarily interested in including in a peer-reviewed journal hmm. that I realized would not come back to benefit others. And so these people were contributing to a body of knowledge that would never come back to support them. And that felt weird to me. Hmm. So that led me away from the field of public health, away from the field of research, and into community engagement and community organizing work. Okay. What, what does that mean? Who, do you, who did you work for? <laughs> did you know where to go? Um, Not really. I knew what types of problems I wanted to solve and what types of work I wanted to learn from. 
I wanted to understand how you can organize and activate whole communities to solve their own problems. Hmm. Big ideas. You were always a big thinker. <sighs> I, I think... I think I was always a very I've always been a very hopeful person. Okay. A person who knows that new futures are possible, mm -hmm. who believes in the possibilities of the genius among us, hmm. and who has a really strong sense of fairness or unfairness. Okay. So how did how did community organizing work go for you? It was good. I had the beautiful opportunity of working for a progressive community engagement firm locally that was really focused on issue campaigns primarily, but some electoral work as well. And I learned a ton and built a really solid network. But more than that, I really it really affirmed to me that our communities have the wonderful answers that all of our systems need in order to serve people better. Not just our systems even. Huge companies need to learn from their customers or customers they haven't centered, um, potential customers as well. So I really started to get the kernels of what Imagined Liver could be in that moment around the work. And doing something of your own, starting something of your own, yeah. I mean, was that kind of in your head? Did you think that's the route you would go? Did you feel like an entrepreneur? No. So after working in campaign world, in the campaign world, I moved into philanthropy, mm -hmm. to the philanthropic sector for a while. And worked on, you know, external program leadership, good governance work, and tried to think about how we bring more people to the table. So I, that was sort of like a testing ground for the model for Imagine Deliver. But I kind of was then faced with, you know, two paths that I could go down. I'm a mother. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this before, but I'm a mother of four now. But I was pregnant with my third child. Where did you where did you and Taki meet? Oh, we met in school. We okay. met we met at the University of Minnesota. Okay. Yeah. And I feel like there's a we before we go on with your path to Imagine Deliver, talk a little bit about your relationship and how that changed. You know, I mean, he he was kind of in the tech startup world. Yeah. Um, he is uh he is Muslim. You you converted. Oh yeah, all okay. that. Oh, you want the personal? Let's do stuff. it. Can we do? Well, I feel like it's really relevant to to what you're doing now and to kind of how you view the world. Yeah, it is. He's definitely my partner in all things. So, yeah, Taki and I were introduced by some mutual friends in the early mid two thousands. But before that, I had been, you know, on sort of a, a spiritual path. I'm a very fast-paced person. <laughs> and I was sort of feeling like I need something that grounds me. Mm -hmm. And I had taken some Arabic classes and had already been exposed to Judaism previously and really saw the sort of Abrahamic religions as, as uh, singular parts of one big whole. And so I was really open to exploration. And I began um, in college, even before I met Taki, exploring Islam and learning Arabic and actually could read the Quran before I even considered becoming Muslim at all. But in 2006, I, I made a, a pretty quick decision that I was, I was going to convert. And converting in Islam is like super easy. You have to say, a sentence three times and have some witnesses in front of you. It's not the same mm. as being baptized and becoming Christian or, you know, in Judaism where you have to, you know, take courses and right. and and follow a specific process led by, I think, a rabbi. Was your family supportive? 
They were like, what is happening? (laughs) But yeah, I mean, my family is a really worldly, loving family. I think they didn't realize, like, the tensions that would exist. Like, Mm. you know, my family loves wine. And I stopped drinking Mm. in 2006. And I mean, those are, like, really surface-level things. But there are all sorts of things that come with adopting a different lifestyle. That there's probably some grief that comes along with, oh, the daughter... My daughter, who I respect a lot, has chosen this pathway that I could never have imagined for her. Hmm. But overall, um, they've been incredibly supportive, totally loving, and participate in all of our stuff, Mm -hmm. like all the time. So I think it's been really enriching for all of us, actually. But it was a journey. Sure. So you're on that journey personally, professionally. You've been in these different worlds, but all kind of mission purpose driven. Yeah. At what point did you start thinking, maybe I I need to start my own thing? Well, it was kind of like I have this model brewing. Our systems and our communities need to get closer to one another. You know, at Imagine Deliver, we now do work primarily across you know, publicly accountable systems like healthcare, local government, philanthropy, but also work in the built environment around real estate and community development, Hmm. work that affects the public. And I thought to myself, I can go and lead in one place and make a really deep impact, or I can bring this model somewhere else and I can work with lots of different organizations to help them get closer to their communities in really like sustained ways. What made you feel like you knew how to do that? Ego? (laughs) I don't, (laughs) I don't know. I, my, I have an aunt. My aunt um, was a business leader in St. Paul before women were typically business leaders. So I guess I had a model to learn from early Mm -hmm. on in my formative years. But I've never been someone who shies away from a challenge. And Mm -hmm. I've never been someone who thinks to themselves, I don't have any business doing that. Hmm. And I didn't try, I didn't do it all at once either. It started with, you know, going off on my own as an independent consultant and, you know, really focusing in and honing a model, seeing if I could make money with Hmm. it. And if it could actually work in helping my clients make an impact Mm -hmm. or make a big change that actually would lead to different outcomes for them and their communities. Consulting can be a good way to sort of dip a toe in and and see if it works. You don't have to immediately hire a team or open a big office or or things like that. So, So did it take off? Did people want your services? I have never done outbound sales. Wow. Not since day one. Mm-hmm. So we, I'm, like I said, I was lucky to have a really solid network. And, you know, back to the conversation about Taki, he's formidable in his own right, right? And he's always been my thought partner and a co-builder. And we've sort of leapfrogged together, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there have been moments where he's been intensively building uh, in his space, and then I have, and then he has And now we've converged Mm -hmm. in these beautiful ways in sort of technology, equity, uh, the future of work, the future of our systems and like in transformative spaces. But what we've shared all along is this, you know, commitment to new possibilities, Hmm. to a better way forward, to the fact that there is enough for everybody. Mm -hmm. 
and that we can, you know, find really creative, elegant solutions that do work better for everyone. So so tell me um, the the mission statement or, or when you were, you know, kind of envisioning Imagine Deliver, how did you describe it? And is it the same today? Well, the language has certainly evolved, right? We started out as as like really testing this collective model of human-centered design that put people with underestimated or intersectional identities in the driver's seat. It, that, that morphed into this concept or process that we call user as designer that starts with setting context and putting people who have experienced a problem firsthand in the design chair. Okay, can you give up for, for those of us yeah. who aren't quite as evolved as you are, can you give us an <laughs> totally. example? Totally. Um, we're doing a project focused on food security right now with a, with a county client. Mm-hmm. And they want to know how do we create a food system that is accessible, culturally appropriate, where there's enough for everyone? What does that look like? So what do you do? <laughs> well, the best thing that we can do is go to people who have experienced hunger hmm. and ask them how they fill their own gaps. What does it mean? What are the what are the most important foods that they need to access? What does health and nutrition look like for them? What does a food system where there is abundance look and feel like? Hmm. What are those solutions that they know because they have intimate wisdom of a problem? Any surprising insights in that research? Well, I don't know yet because oh, it's on, it's a project it that's ongoing. Okay, but you know we worked with a, a healthcare client last year, a large you know, multi-billion dollar safety net hospital who is charged with delivering health equity across across the state, really. And that 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 client was deeply committed to hearing from patients and not just patients, patients who who have been pushed to the margins, patients who experience housing insecurity, patients who show up in the ER. And what we learned was really tremendous. We learned so many amazing things that are relevant to all of our experience of healthcare. Like we need bigger rooms where whole families can be to support each other. Mm. Like sound and and touch can can dramatically change a person's experience of a healthcare space. That light and greenery can heal us from trauma. That it's really, really important for our healthcare providers to to understand or have a reference point for our lived experience. All of those things, all of those insights, not only improve outcomes for people who have been pushed to the margins, but for people like you and me, Allie, who know healthcare can be better and have access to it nonetheless. Do that all sounds amazing, and then part of me is thinking. Those organizations couldn't figure those things out themselves? Did they, did they need you to tell them? Well, the two things we deliver at, at Imagine and Deliver mm-hmm. are community-focused insights with an applied equity and justice lens and really solid strategy for how to get there. Mm. I don't think that people working in our spaces are bad people, right, or incompetent in any way. Mm-hmm. But sometimes an outside perspective can really help leverage what's new. You know, I've had a client come to me and say, we, you know, if we if we could have done this without you, we would have Hmm. by now. So it isn't just that they don't have enough uh, people on staff and they need someone else. I mean, they, they need it's the perspective. 
that can be part of it. But change is really hard. Mm -hmm. Change is really hard. And when you're in a vocation for 5, 10, 15 years, you develop gaps for for what could be. You, you get really focused on this is how we've always done it. This is how we improve incrementally. But it's very hard to lift your head up and imagine the big picture of, of new possibilities. Like what if our, a hospital could actually be a biodome? Like, what, <laughs> like really? And we would have healthy food and delicious herbs and access to light coming through. Are you going to build that? I, I hope so. <laughs> I would like to. Imagine and deliver. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. So much of what you do involves kind of getting out of the, the day-to-day and the mundane and the limitations and, and dreaming it up. Yeah. What advice do you bring to your clients or anyone just about kind of liberating yourself to, to dream and to imagine? Bring artists. Use art. Play. A lot of our work has to do with helping people get out of their roles, especially C-level leaders, right? We have, in leadership, we have big jobs to do, and we have specific roles that we're expected to play. And sometimes those roles mean we have to leave some of our humanity at the door. Hmm. And those of us who have gotten really, really good at working have had to also let go of some of that creativity and play along the way. Sometimes that happens incrementally, right? But kids are really amazing at play. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that in action? I mean, do you sit CEOs down to draw and paint? <laughs> like, uh-huh. Literally. Yeah, I mean, draw, paint, build, work with people they've never worked before. Sometimes we bring young, young people, young artists with us to the table to help activate some of that creativity and design. This is not all new. A lot of it has, is rooted in, you know, human-centered design methods, um, emerging strategies. But the work is about activating our own, hu- like, human experience in order to create a different future. So we have to be able to get out of the mundane in order to do that. And, and do you, I mean, what have your observations been? Are, are people able to do that? Yeah. I, and in fact, it is such a it is such a gift. You know, we're, we're doing strategic planning work with large organizations, with mm-hmm. organizations that have sometimes, you know, 20, 30, 40 people on their board. Mm-hmm. All of these people are esteemed professionals in their own right. This is not child's play, but it can and it is really hard work that we do. But we get people out of that sort of like boardroom feel so that they can, you know, really think to the future. It's, it's really fun to watch someone, who, someone who's in spreadsheets all day, mm-hmm. you know, get to, get to sit with, I don't know, a, a recent graduate from Parsons and design a new hospital building. Hmm. Or think in three dimension around how we want to deliver our care to mm-hmm. see like to see a county leader tasked with deliver making sure that everyone has food countywide. Hmm. Imagine, you know, what it would mean for a family to be able to access that wherever they go. I feel like that has to and maybe I'm just being too practical and I'm not imagining enough, but I feel like 
that's got to put a lot of pressure on you when you walk into those rooms and you're expected not just to like guide them, but to blow their minds. Yeah, it is a lot of pressure. It's really hard work. It's, you know, you can ask my team, we're trying to build a really amazing company founded on principles of equity that makes money. Like we are unapologetic about profitability. Right. And that delivers a new future for what work can look and feel like. At the same time, we're wrapping our arms around communities who have been experienced real harm, who have been pushed to the margins, and we're bringing like high-level leaders along with us. That's a very varied skill set. Since 2020, kind of the, you know, the the benchmarks that a lot of organizations are setting for themselves, recognizing that change needs to happen, we it has to happen now. What has that done to your work with Imagine Deliver? You know, I think you you're you're hitting on something really important, which is that old ways of doing don't lead to new ways of being. Mm-hmm. And we're in a, you know, we're in this moment where we're in a dual pandemic. We're in the we've moved into an endemic state, they say, of COVID, but we also are experiencing like acute acute injustice nationwide. And we aren't we are never neutral. At Imagine Deliver, we don't believe that there is such a thing as objective neutrality. And so, like, that's just something that you need to know about us. It doesn't make us the perfect consultant for everyone. Mm -hmm. So if you want us to show up and, you know, not have a prerogative on on the way that we design, you know, we're not for you. Mm -hmm. But our model will support a better way for someone who, you know, is not progressive, does not ascribe to core values of of justice, who maybe isn't quote unquote woke, you know, mm-hmm. it will benefit that person just as much as it benefits somebody else. So for that reason, you know, in 2020, I, I sort of, there was a moment when the pandemic hit and for like three months, all our clients went away. Wow. Because everyone was focused on direct response to the pandemic. Of course. You know, you don't have time to continue business as usual when you're trying to figure out how to get grant making dollars out to community members. Mm-hmm. That <laughs> had to be scary. Yeah. You, know, you don't have to. I mean, I'm pretty adaptable. Yeah. So it has. I wasn't really concerned. Really? I wasn't. We had four kids. A house? You, you, I mean, you just, did you start thinking about what other things you I, could do or you knew it was going to come back? I was just like, if this isn't the moment, we do something else. Okay. Like, I can get another job. Hmm. I can start something new. I could buy a laundromat or like a, <laughs> you know, stock grocery store shelves at Trader Joe's, you know, like. That's an amazing attitude. I, there's. If, if, you know, if the square peg's not going in the round hole, then why force it? But in that moment, I was like, okay, let's, I'm just going to pause and I'm going to see what happens because as the dust settles, our community is really going to need support. Mm. And I think that we have something to offer that other people do not have. Mm -hmm. And we had a great runway at the time. We were in a solid financial position. So it wasn't like emergency bells ringing and, you know, it was more like, oh, Okay, maybe maybe this is time to like regroup, regroup and take a break. Mm-hmm. And and then George Floyd was murdered. Yeah. And then all these projects started coming to us. How did the work change after George Floyd? Kate explains after a word from our sponsor. 
Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Is your bank a partner or simply a provider? In today's environment, businesses need a bank that can move quickly and act creatively. Platinum Bank understands the Twin Cities market, partnering with clients to overcome challenges and capitalize on opportunities. Their financial products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of your organization. To learn how Platinum Bank can be an asset to your business, visit www.platinumbankmn.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. Calls are coming in for DEI projects, but Kate wants to do more transformative, enduring equity work, including a tech solution. Let's hear what happened next. But they were weird projects, Allie. They were projects of the moment, like help us craft this this diversity statement. Like I said before, we're Mm -hmm. not a diversity, equity, and inclusion firm. Right. So did you say no to those projects? I did. (laughs) I started, I have Theon, my operations lead. I'm like, what are you doing? Right. We had huge retailers coming to us asking us to to help um, in that moment. We had incredibly incredible possibilities that felt like taking advantage of a, a really horrible moment. Yeah. And so I did. I turned those projects away. Hmm. But eventually, the really good, solid projects focused on long-term sustained transformation started to emerge. Mm-hmm. And that's when we started to grow. And so we've tripled in size over the last wow. two years. Yeah. And and does and it feels good to you because it's they're they're thoughtful, long range kind of projects. They're thoughtful, long range projects and the leaders who have engaged us care about hearing from their communities. No organization or system is gonna be perfect. And in fact, oftentimes our clients come to us when they've really screwed up Mm -hmm. and when they need help figuring out how to forge a sustainable path forward that also leads to their own sustainability and longevity. So for us, it's been really cool to see people starting to adopt our language, really understand what we're about. We've Mm -hmm. really built a new way of working, a new way of consulting. We call ourselves consulting firm for the new majority. People now understand what that means, which is weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and we've received some really beautiful recognition for the quality of our work. Mm-hmm. You know, we can stand toe to toe with big for, big four national consulting firms and teach them new ways of being. And we have. How big is your team? Ten. We okay. have ten people. That feels huge. Yeah, really? It feels huge. And every person is like, and I hate to use violent references, each person is punching above their weight. At what point in all of this did you and, and Theon, who you mentioned, start thinking about, oh, we're just going to also do a little software startup? <laughs> well, you know, when you bring women and people together, people of color together, mm-hmm. we are a fast acting, use our resources well type of bunch. We are, you know, investing in, in women and, and POC is a very sound investment strategy. And so part of our engagement work includes connecting with team members and staff of, of organizations. Mm-hmm. And there are specific insights that, that kept coming up over and over, especially for people with non-majority identities. This place is a revolving door. I don't know where my next leadership role is. I don't feel like my best self is welcome here. Hmm. 
I wish I could lead. And these were the things that were coming up in your Imagine Deliver consulting work. All the time. Yeah. Didn't matter what sector we were working in, how big the organization was. It could have been a team of 20 or a team of 2 million. Mm -hmm. We were hearing the same things around the challenges of retention. You know, and I'm a millennial, so I've been working at Imagine Deliver now for six, six years. Mm-hmm. And that is the longest job I've ever held. <laughs> Taki is the same. Are you getting a little itchy or you're, you're feeling okay? No, I keep starting new stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's another good. way to handle it. Yeah, yes. I keep starting new stuff and uh-huh. growing things and trying new things. It's a beautiful thing to be able to be a leader of a space that is un, unafraid of risk. Mm-hmm. So... So, so you're noticing these patterns. Noticing these patterns. You know, community insights keep on giving, mm-hmm. right? It's not just you gather them and they tell you one thing to do once. It's you gather them and they keep providing you with opportunities to try new things. And so as an insights consulting firm, we have the beauty of having heard from thousands and thousands of people, people in the workforce around what they want work to look and feel like. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we had any capital, you know, Theanna and I looked at each other and we're like, well, we should do something with some of these insights. So we built this SaaS platform, which is focused primarily on internal team growth and retention. And it's called Mailroom because we want people to be able to actualize the American dream, maybe for the very first time by starting in the mailroom and going all the way to the top. Hmm, I love that. And you didn't see anything like that that companies were using or or turning to? There are a few national and international competitors to mailroom, but not many. Mm -hmm. And none that are solely focused on helping people rise. You know, we want companies who use the mailroom platform to be able to say their empl- to their employees when they come in, this is the last time you're going to have to look for a job here because hmm. we're going to be offering you opportunities to grow and to thrive. They may be opportunities we haven't imagined for you, but we're going to offer them anyway. We're going to see what happens. It sounds great. How does a software as a service platform actually accomplish that? Well, There needs to be a human intention to retain and grow talent. Mm -hmm. So that starts a software. I would say all of my friends working in in computer science and AI would probably be like, let's not say that a that a software can actually supplant a human like a human will, Mm -hmm. because that's not that's not true. But we are experiencing an unprecedented um, worker shortages. Mm -hmm. It is the job seekers market. We know that our workplaces need to adapt and change and take employee needs into account. Part of that is growth. And retention is an incredibly efficient financial strategy. Mm-hmm. So how does it how does Mailroom actually work as a tool in a this is something that a company would would purchase or subscribe yep. to for its own team and not just for the HR professional. The idea is that everybody at the company is using it. Yeah, just like a, a platform like Gusto for payroll, um, Mailroom is a service uh, aimed at supporting companies. So we would support companies with a license and then they would deploy it to mm-hmm. all of their employees. 
and they would fill out a profile. And then we have specific algorithms that help match candidates from their internal pools with uh, specific hiring opportunities company-wide. But the idea is that this going through that process kind of gets you out of the traditional headspace of if I'm a, if I'm an assistant in marketing, the next role is to become a director in marketing and then a senior marketer, that, right. that there might be other opportunities across the organization. I might manage I, be, I might manage a boots on the ground store and make a change to move into corporate or I might um, be a, an associate in marketing and make a shift to finance. And how does the software help you figure that out? Well, we have a variety of different tools to assess and understand skills and aptitudes. But also we have this this set of questions called X factors, which are really centered around the essential skills needed for the future of work. Things like adaptability, resilience, entrepreneurialism, innovation, empathy, collaboration, communication. So we not only ask people, what do you want to do? What can you do? But also, what are your, what are your top leadership skills that, that will help you contribute to a team? Mm-hmm. Not what degrees do you have, but what are your skills? We ask interests? those things, too. Like yeah. People will, you know, it's like LinkedIn Plus. Hmm. It's like a, like a humanizing LinkedIn mm-hmm. that takes that that elevates you based on your side hustles, your lived experience, your volunteer roles, your natural talents, your superpowers, mm-hmm. so that people can actually see the amazing talent that they're not tapping into within their very own organizations. This is very new. Have you had a chance yet to see Mailroom in action? We're in testing right now, so we're just finishing UAT, moving on to pilot. Okay. And what's the what's the feedback so far? It's so good. Really? It's a beautiful it's so good. I mean, amazing feedback about around things we should tweak and things we'd like to grow and we certainly have a lot of goals on our our roadmap, but this is a fully usable product as of as of this month. From a business perspective, it seems like you're, you're, you don't have to rely on individuals to subscribe. You're talking about medium to large companies. Yeah. So that's kind of a good marketplace. They're willing to pay, especially now. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, the time will time will tell. Mm-hmm. Right. But what we're doing is we're trying to see what will how will this help our workplaces to really welcome talent that they hadn't considered before. And, you know, there is also a values reason be doing this work. I care about the advancement of women, of people who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. I care about people with disabilities. I want to see those people given the same opportunities. Mm-hmm. We have a huge opportunity gap here in Minnesota where our company is based. And our available workforce is awesome. They have the skills needed for the future of work. They just don't look exactly the way leaders and hiring managers might imagine them to be. So. Everything you're talking about, I feel like every company, every organization is is wrestling with talking about right now from retention to work culture. There's never been I've never you if I did a search for how many times TCB has used the term work culture in the last yeah. two years. I mean, it's just unbelievable the the shift in what we talk about and what we care about 
you know, as a business community. Yeah. This has always been your work. So what would you say, um, what is your best advice right now? What What is your, you know, what's your vision for, for where we go from here for the future of work? Ooh, that's a great question, Ali. What is my vision? Is it my vision, my piece of advice? All those things. For the future of work, we have no choice but to listen to people who work, mm-hmm. right? Our users are most important designers. So when we think about what the workplace needs to be, our teams need to have a say. Mm-hmm. And we need to give up some power in order to design that with them. And that's hard to do. That's uncomfortable work. That might look really different. That me- might mean that there's a boundary against all-nighters, which when my team hears this, they're going to be like, we've pulled all-nighters. <laughs> you know, nothing. Practice what you preach. That's right? right. And there might be a move towards a four-day work week where there's, where there's the ability to do that or different benefits packages like um, student loan repayment or, I don't know, different models for how we deliver health care different types of PTO. At at Imagine Deliver, we have unlimited PTO and there are benefits and drawbacks to that as well. But the future of our workplaces are going to be determined by those who work there. And we cannot hold tight-fisted to the old ways of being in order to adapt to the future. There is no going back. Mm -hmm. It seems like you, you really have to be a relentless optimist to do what you're doing. You have to believe that things can be better. How do you stay optimistic, especially in the face of a lot of hard things that don't feel like we're necessarily moving in the right direction? <laughs> sometimes I actually sent an email yesterday where I said, yeah, this work com- sometimes feels like we're kayaking into the eye of a typhoon. And I don't mm. know if typhoons have eyes, so <laughs> I get fact it. check me on that. Yeah. Well, our values are very clear. Action is everything. Optimism drives us. We win together. Genius is everywhere. Those are, those are our core values at Imagine Deliver. Optimism is a practice. Hmm. It, is a, it is a practice. Some people say it's an act of resistance. I don't know if I get that churchy about it. And, and hope is a choice. Hmm. We have to choose to imagine an audacious world that is better, more available, cleaner, and healthier for our next generation. Mm -hmm. And if we lose that hope, that the all of the rest of it is lost, I think. So optimism is the thing I that we have to cling to in moments like these and in the and in the good moments too. And we're seeing wins, Mm -hmm. right? We are seeing we are seeing the the fruits of our labor, the products of our work. I think there are I still believe that there are more good, there's more good out there than there is bad. And there is more opportunity than there are shut doors. And now as you find yourself in rooms with, you know, CEOs of, of hospitals and healthcare systems and big organizations, yeah. do you feel like, well, yeah, I, I told you all along, I knew what I was talking about? Or do you, do you ever have imposter syndrome? How does it feel when you're standing there? I think imposter syndrome is a construct of the patriarchy. <laughs> Okay. Oh, cut that out. That sounds really <laughs> terrible, but it's true. I I think that um I really do. I think imposter syndrome is something is a story we are taught hmm. to tell ourselves in rooms that others are not intimidated in. Mm. I am proving myself every day. I have a 
a weird little company with a unicorn logo that is somehow haphazardly building a national design movement. It's unbelievable. And it's happening. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's luck. I think it's hard work, a strong network, and lots and lots and lots of proven work and reputation. Mm -hmm. But in those rooms, I'm often still the youngest, even though I'm (laughs) middle-aged. I'm often the most female. (laughs) (laughs) I'm often the person with another intersectional identity. And it's my job to bring a lot of people with me to those spaces, for sure. Mm -hmm. But every room I walk into, I have to show up with excellence and my best self. And I have to prove myself every day. I I don't believe that, like, I've arrived. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, it's good to know that people like you are, are out there helping everybody move forward. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Yeah. Thanks, Allie. My pleasure. Well, lots to unpack, lots of inspiration and ideas to be taken from Kate. She is, uh, she's, she's moving faster than, than a lot of us. Let's figure out how we put this in some context and, and what we can all take away from hearing Kate's story. Let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas, Opus College of Business, where Gino Giovanelli is a marketing professor and has a lot of thoughts on user design and imposter syndrome and all the feels. Gino, as you were listening to, to Kate, and she's so articulate and, and so clear on her vision, I know for me, I just kept thinking, wow, I mean, to, to have these big ideas and take them to you know leaders and experts in the field, you know, at, at her stage of, of life and business, that's really uh, amazing. How do we all capture that kind of spirit and energy in our own work? Well, it, it is um, amazingly unique. It's refreshing, honestly. I mean, I, I think it starts with uh, confidence and conviction to just to go for it. Um, I think if you want to be a change agent, you've got to have sort of the, the gusto to be able to to just swing for it and, uh, and, and do the dreaming and then do the doing. It's not for everybody. And I think that's why her business is so successful because I don't think people can figure this out necessarily themselves. And they need, a, they need some kind of structure, platform, whatever, methodology or whatever it is. But I think it starts with her being extremely confident uh, in, in being able to be a transform agent. Right. Are, is there is there a way to teach that? Is that something that you touch on in in classes? How to solve big problems? It, it you can teach it to a certain degree, but until you do it, um, I think it's 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 just real theoretical, and that's and that's why I encourage my students. I'm like, just just go for it. Just jump in the pool. You'll never know how deep the the, the pool is until you just jump in. Don't don't dip the toe. Um, and, and just dive in. And once, once you figure out, a, you get a couple of these big wins, then you know you've got the confidence to keep it going. But it, it is hard. And I try to coach my students. Like, they're not expecting you to come out um, in your senior year and take that first job and have done everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the, where you're going is the place to go do those things. Uh, hopefully, we've given you a framework and we've given you the confidence and conviction and the, and the, and the educational framework to just dive in uh, and, and try things out and get things done and then and then refine. Right. right. One of the things that that, you know, we, we touch on a little bit and you and I were talking about in relation to my conversation with Kate 
is this idea of imposter syndrome, which we all feel at different times. I think probably every guest on the show would say they've felt it at one time or another. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm so uh, relieved or happy or whatever the right words are that that she covered that. Because you're right, I think it is something that everybody feels, Mm -hmm. regardless of industry, but not many people talk about because it's uncomfortable. And I talked to my students about that. I said, don't, you know, when you get, when you get out of here, don't try to be something you're not. Be, be who you are, okay? Because sometimes the company almost wants someone, well, it doesn't always, but they, they want someone, at least when they hire a recent graduate, to just come in with a fresh set of eyes mm-hmm. and, 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 and to just look at things differently. Because if, if, if the company had the solution, they wouldn't need you, okay? They, you know what I mean? It's like, if we got it all figured out, we don't need to bring in new people. And, and so I just say, be who you are. Right. Be authentic. Don't be an imposter, okay? Be for real. And I also think this goes to faculty too. I mean, a lot of faculty, um, you know, they've done a lot of research and they've gone to school for a long time and they know their, they know their field, but it's oftentimes when, the, when they're asked specific questions, especially like an MBA school where you've got students in the class who are, chief marketing officers and some of that mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and, the, and they'll ask the teacher these questions and, and they know very well the teacher hasn't done the job that they're doing. I think the smartest thing is for everybody just to be, to be real and authentic and say, here's the perspective I'm bringing and I hope that's valuable to you. Hmm. That, that's, that's really great. And that's, I mean, that's an interesting situation that you bring up. But I think you're right. It all comes back to just valuing your own ideas and knowing that, mm-hmm. that fresh ideas and fresh perspective is sometimes the, the, the best the best thing to add to the conversation. Totally. And there was a, there was a phrase that she used. Oh yeah, here it is. Old ways of doing don't lead to new ways of being. God, I love that. Yeah. I love that. The only way you could break free from the old ways of doing is to bring in new people that, that, that don't know those old ways of doing. And so any idea out of their eye, out of their mind is a brand new one. And you can, you can say, you know what, that doesn't work because of this, this, and this. You go, okay, fine. But at least you can you can get a steady stream of these ideas and maybe one or two of those hit. Right. Right. Get out of the everyday. Well, and get out of our own way, perhaps, as well. <laughs> you know, Giovanelli, you always add such great perspective. Thank you so much for, for chatting with us today. And thank you to our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. It takes teamwork to make By All Means, and we've got some all-stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business and Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, especially Associate Dean Laura Dunham for all their support. Our theme music is by Song Finch. Thank you for listening to By All Means. (laughs) 